0: Matthew chapter 21, (coughs) and uh, we'll begin reading at verse 23, and read down to verse 32. And when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching, and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing too, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men... We fear the multitude, for they all hold John to be a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, We we do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in the vineyard. He answered and said, I will, sir. And he did not go. And he came to the second and said the same thing, but he answered and said, I will not. Yet he afterward regretted it and went. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the latter. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. And you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and harlots did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. If you're using the authorized version, the King James Version, you've noticed probably that the order was reversed. Uh, It's an interesting thing here. Um, The manuscript evidence, the textual evidence, from what I've read, is about equally divided on this. And uh, one of the uh, textual traditions has the uh, son saying, I will. Well, that was the first one. And uh, and uh, the other tradition has the first one being the son saying, I won't. And so uh, it's a... Uh, uh, one of those things, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of really doesn't really have any bearing on uh, the meaning of this. It makes no difference in the meaning. But it's kind of an interesting thing. And uh, I don't know how those differences arose, whether somebody miscopied it or what happened, or maybe some scribe thought that he would improve upon the way, the order of it. But it doesn't really make any difference. If anything, I would say uh, that the, it seems to me that the King James Version is the most natural in the way it presents things, but since most of you have the New American Standard, that's the way we'll go. Uh, again, it uh, doesn't affect the meaning of it at all, as far as I can tell. Uh, this parable of the two sons I'd like for us to look at today, the parable of the two sons, and it occupies only five verses, verse 28 to 32, and it's found only in Matthew's gospel. And I think that often uh, this parable tends to kind of take the back seat in our mind compared to some of the other parables. In fact, even when I spoke on this parable that comes up next, the uh, the landowner verse 33 and following. Uh, Really, the right thing to have done would have been to have spoken on this one first, and then the next week to have spoken on that one. But I passed over this one and went to that one. And uh, there is a a temptation not to consider this as being uh, quite as important of a parable as some of these other bigger parables. And yet, uh, it is very important. It, It represents... A major portion, actually, of our Lord's teaching. Hearing versus doing, or better yet, you could say saying versus doing. Um, Profession as opposed to possession. Or external righteousness as opposed to internal righteousness. All of those things are major themes in the Lord's teaching. And all of them are really touched on in this little parable Uh, of only five verses. The parable of the two sons. Uh, If we would take this parable to heart, if religious people would take this parable to heart, it would make the difference between heaven and hell. For many a person, it would make the difference between heaven and hell. Uh, Saying as opposed to doing. So... um, Let's begin as we look at this parable of the two sons. uh, Let's begin by getting the setting once again before we launch into the parable itself. And if you look at the setting, Matthew 21, some incredible, outrageous things have taken place in Matthew 21. Uh, First of all, in verses 8 to 11, we have what's called the triumphal entry. Here's the Lord Jesus coming into Jerusalem, uh, riding on a donkey, and people actually spreading uh, uh, their garments in front of him for this donkey to walk on, and they cutting off uh, branches from the trees and spreading them in the road, and so quite a thing, and he's coming down the road into Jerusalem, And the multitude is crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Verse 9, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so all the city of Jerusalem is stirred and in an uproar, who is this? And they say, this is the Jesus, uh, the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So uh, there has just been this triumphal entry. And then when he gets into the temple, I think this was probably a day later, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, uh, this is quite a thing. He comes in there and just takes over. And actually, turns over the tables of money changers. I mean, money flying everywhere. He didn't show any concern for this, and uh, uh, drove them out of the temple, cast them out, and uh, says in verse thirteen, he said to them, "It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it, uh, you're making it a robber's den." And so that, then the, <clears throat> the uh, driving out of the money changers. And then in verse 14, you have the blind and the lame coming to him in the temple and him healing them. And then in verse 15 and verse 16, you have the children crying out in the temple. Now they need to be quiet in there, but here they are crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David inside the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes become indignant, said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast prepared praise for thyself? So that's a little bit of the setting. And uh, you can see here from every bit of this what a threat this was to the religious hierarchy. I mean, think if you were these men in power, jealously guarding their power. Uh, the scribe, it, they're called chief priests, scribes, elders of the people. And here this upstart comes in, riding on a donkey with every, all the multitude spreading their garments in front of him. And he gets down there to the temple and starts turning over the tables of the money changers. And healing people in the temple and letting and justifying that the children would run around saying Hosanna to the son of David. So, I mean, it it was a it was a threat to them. So the very next thing that comes up uh, is when he comes into the temple again to teach, they are there to challenge him to challenge His authority. He's coming onto their own turf. He's coming into the temple of all places and acting like it belongs to Him. And so they're going to step in. And uh, He hadn't even asked their permission for any of this. And they're going to step in and challenge His authority and say, who gave you permission to do this? Now, J.C. Ryle has a good quote on this. He says, The chief priests have not a word to say about our Lord's teaching. They make no charge against the lives or conduct of himself or his followers. The point on which they fasten is his commission. By what authority doest thou these things, and who gave thee this authority? The same charge has often been made against the servants of God, when they have striven to check the progress of ecclesiastical corruption. It is the old engine by which the children of this world have often labored to stop the progress of revivals and reformations. It's the weapon which was often brandished in the face of the reformers, the Puritans, and the Methodists of the last century. It is the poison arrow which is often shot at city missionaries and lay agents in the present day. Too many, care, too many care nothing for the manifest blessing of God on a man's work, so long as he is not sent forth by their own sect or party. Now, we don't realize how prevalent this is, but it is. Uh, I, you think back in church history, somebody like Hal Harris, he wasn't the ordained priest in the Anglican church. God's hand was mightily upon him. But he was not allowed to preach because he wasn't properly ordained in the Anglican church. So what they did, uh, he wouldn't preach, he would just exhort for sometimes nine hours at a time <laughs> with, the, with the power of God mightily upon him. And uh, he, I think he started out actually reading sermons to the people and uh, God's presence was so great. There And so many people were converted that, of course, all of Wales was greatly affected by the ministry of Hal Harris. Uh, But uh, he was a good example of this. It matters nothing to them that some humble laborer in God's harvest can point to numerous conversions of souls through his instrumentality. They still cry, by what authority doest thou these things? His success is nothing. They demand his commission. His cures are nothing. They want his diploma. Let us neither be surprised nor moved when we hear such things. It is it, it is old charge which was brought against Christ himself. so there here it is, and that's been true all down through the ages. Now you can have, I mean, you go back through the history of the missionary movement. Time and time again, the people that God used in the most mighty way were rejected by the missionary society and they wouldn't even let them go. And they knew they had a call from God and they went ahead and followed the Lord. Now, it's one thing if the missionary society is really walking with God. It's another thing if you're dealing with an apostate bunch like they were here. And that's what this was. <clears throat> well, they come up and they say, who, who told you you could do this? We didn't tell you you could preach in the temple. We didn't give you this permission and this authority. And so the Lord answers them in verses 24 to 27. How does He an- answer them? Well, with infinite wisdom. And really this would be a, uh, something we ought to spend the whole time on in itself, just to look at the Lord's wisdom with His enemies. But here he turns their own sword back on them and forces them to face the truth about their question. Where does his authority come from? They knew deep in their hearts where his authority came from, and they didn't want to face that. But he brings brings it back to them. He knew that they dare not deny that John the Baptist was a man sent from God. And in their hearts, they knew that. They knew that he was, and the common people knew that. Uh, Anybody that had any conscience at all knew that. And so he begins by asking them that question. He says, what about John? Verse 25, the baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? Now notice here, there's only two possibilities. Everybody standing behind a pulpit this morning, and there's lots of places all over this land where men are standing behind pulpits this morning. There's only two possibilities how they got there. They either got there through men, or they got there through God. Isn't that a sobering thing? Was John's baptism from heaven, or was it through men? I have a, an uncle who was high up in the, one of the old mainline liberal denominations, uh, a district superintendent. And uh, my brother-in-law, John Brashear, asked him one time, he said, how did you feel led to get into the whole thing of being a preacher and following this path? And he said, well, when I got out of the war, it seemed like, you know, it was... I needed a job, and it seemed like it would be a good thing to go into, and, you know, that's all there was. He talked about the, basically, just, uh, I, I cannot imagine this, I mean, it seems like there's nothing that you'd less rather be than to take up being a preacher as a professional. But that's what he did, and uh, simply sent by men and ordained by men with no message, nothing to say, doesn't even believe in the Bible. Incredible thing. Only two possibilities. From heaven or from men. And so they say in verse 25, the second half of the verse, they begin reasoning among themselves, saying if we say from heaven, He'll say say to us, then why did you not... Believing Now, <clears throat> this is something. The scribes and Pharisees realized what John the Baptist was saying. They knew that John had pointed them to Christ. They weren't ignorant about that. You remember what John said? He said, after me comes one who's mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And... Uh, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And uh, he uh, was standing out there one day and he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The scribes and the Pharisees knew enough to know that John the Baptist was pointing men toward the Lord Jesus Christ. So they were not only rejecting Christ's testimony, they were deliberately rejecting John the Baptist's testimony. And they knew what they were doing. And so they said, uh, look, if we say that uh, John the Baptist came from heaven and from uh, was sent by God, then, uh, then he'll say, why didn't you believe him? And so uh, they didn't want to do that. And so they go on in verse 26 and reason the other side. If we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they all hold John to be a prophet. And so, verse 27, they just came out flat out lie. They said, this is the answer. We don't know. They answered Jesus and said, we just don't know uh, whether John was sent from men or from God. And so the Lord says, neither will I. See, the problem was that the, not that they couldn't tell, but the problem was they wouldn't tell. And he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, notice here, they come up swinging their sword at him, and instantly it's out of their hands and in his hand, and he is the one in the driver's seat and he's the one taking the initiative. And that's the context of this parable. And he brings up the parable to them, comes back at them, and uh, initiates the parable. In verse 28, what do you think? What do you think? In other words, he's going to let them make the decision and let them pronounce judgment against themselves. What do you think? You see, men know what's right. They know what's right. And so what you have to do is get... The thing removed from them enough that they can look objectively at some situation and decide what's right and wrong before they realize that it applies to them. That's the same thing that Nathan, uh, the prophet, did with King David. You remember he told him, it was a parable, told him a parable about a man that had a sheep and what happened with that and so on. And David said, look, that guy deserves to die. He just turned around and said, "You you just said it, that's you. You're the man. And that's what he did here. He asked them a question. What do you think? A man had two sons. And then he goes through the parable and uh, gets down to the end of it at the first part of verse 31. He says, Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the latter. So he got a confession from their own mouths. And then he drives home the point uh, in verse 31 and 32. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and harlots did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe Him. Well, amazing wisdom here from God. And so what are we to make of this parable? What are we to glean from this parable? The first thing I think is this. The fact that all men, all different kinds of men, Whatever they appear to be outwardly, all men are equally lost in the sight of God. They're all lost men. Notice here that there are two groups represented by these two brothers. And that's very obvious. Who are they? Well, first of all, verse 31, he says, the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. So the first group is the tax gatherers and the harlots. Very clear. And they're they're represented by this brother that said, I will not. Second group is you, the the scribes, the priests, and the elders. Um, Verse 15, chief priests and scribes. Verse 23, the chief priests and the elders. And then if you go down to verse 45, the chief priests and the Pharisees, when they heard His parables, that is both of these, they understood that He was speaking about them. So, chief priests, Pharisees, scribes, and elders are this second group. Now notice, beloved, these are exactly the same two groups that we looked at in Luke 15. The older brother... And the younger brother, the one who leaves home and the one who stays home. Very same groups. And you've got to keep that in mind. People get all mixed up on these things. They say, well, now look, this is a father and he had two sons. I mean, they were really if they were really his sons, then that must mean that these, this second group was saved and the first group was saved. And you know, that, mix, that misses the whole point. Jesus is presenting a parable about two groups of people. And neither one of them is saved initially, and the one group turns to God. Two groups here, the religious and the irreligious. Now, notice this, outwardly, these two groups are exact opposites. They're they're very different. They're exact in fact they're exact opposites. One of them says, "I will not." The other one says, "I will, sir." They appear to be exact opposites. The one group is openly defiant and rebellious. "I will not." Can you imagine this? I mean, this is man dealing with God. God says, "Go to work for me in my vineyard." That's quite a call, isn't it? That's the call to be a Christian. Go to work for me in my vineyard. He says, I will not. That's the attitude of man in sin and rebellion against God. So you could say, you sum up this group, you could say he's rude. This group is rude and rebellious. They're rude and rebellious toward God. The other group is the opposite, outwardly respectful. I will, sir. And you know if he answered him with sir, he must be an obedient son, you know. Yes, sir. Well, that's not the case, is it? Uh, The first son is rude and rebellious. This son is false and rebellious. Rude and rebellious, false and rebellious. But they're both rebels. One outwardly, the other inwardly. One very obvious, one very devious. And so we see here, in other words, we see again that all men are lost and need a deep inward change in their hearts. That's what we see. All men, regardless of what they appear to be on the outside, all men are lost and rebellious against God and need a deep change on the inside. Children that have grown up in church all your lives, you can be outwardly good, obedient kids and still need that deep inward change in the heart. My sister Betty uh, was a church goer for many years. Read the Bible through more than once as a lost person, lost religious person. When she became a Christian, she wrote in a letter from these verses. This is Isaiah 35. She says that this was God promising what He's going to do. He says, "Waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert, and the scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water." In the haunt of jackals, its resting place grass becomes reeds and rushes. Now what was she talking about, this wilderness and desert and barren place? She's talking about her own heart. You can be a religious person, reading your Bible, going to church, and when you see what you're really like, you realize it's a waste, howling wilderness. So the Lord is saying here, first of all in this parable, all men, are equally lost before God. They need this deep inward change that's called repentance. Second thing we see here is this. True repentance results in obedience. True repentance results in obedience. Doing, not saying, is the acid test. Now, this, I say, is life and death. It's, this is life and death. It's so important. And it comes up so often in the Lord's teaching. Just maybe look at a couple places if you hold your place here and look back to Matthew 7. Verse 21. <clears throat> Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Do you see how parallel that is? They said, I go, sir. But he says, which of the two actually did the will of the Father? The very same teaching. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? In Your name cast out demons, and in Your name perform many miracles. Notice this, you can cast out demons, prophesy in the name of Christ, and do miracles in His name, and still not do His will. Still not do God's will. You can have all kinds of evil in your heart. And verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you'd depart from me you who practice lawlessness. And then the last part of Matthew 7, he gives a parable of the man who built his house on the sand and the man who built his house upon the rock. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, literally does them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Now, the doing, doing is, doing what he says, does not make a big strong house. Doing what he says just ensures that the house that you build is on the rock. That's the way you know that you've really made it to the rock and that you're not building upon sand. It's the rock that keeps the house from falling. But it's the doing that it, that makes sure to you and everybody else that you're really building upon the rock and not on sand. Here's another one, Luke 6.46. He says, Why do you call me, say to me, Lord, Lord? <clears throat> Why do you call me, Lord, Lord? There's the saying. And do not do what I say. And then he goes on and gives this parable again of the man who built his house upon the rock. So saying as opposed to doing. This comes up a lot throughout the New Testament. 1 John 2.4. He who says, I have come to know him, but does not do, he does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2 9. <clears throat> he who says he is in the light makes all this good profession, yet hates his brother. He's a, he's a liar. He's a murderer. 1 John 4.20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, He's a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see somebody hating somebody else, they're a liar. They don't love God. It's impossible, you see. Saying as opposed to doing. One more on this James two hundred fourteen. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? I mean, that's not a true faith. It's not a saving faith. Now, beloved, it is a dangerous thing to say yes to God. That's a dangerous thing. And we face this a lot of times. I mean, you hear somebody speak or you you read something, Uh, that stirs you, and in your heart you say, I will, Lord. I, I go, sir. And the problem with that is, is that it makes you feel better by doing that. To say, I'm going to change in that. I'm sorry about that. I go, sir. If you don't change, what's happened is you've been deceived into feeling better about yourself because you said that you wanted to change. But you're not acting a bit different than you were before. See that? The danger of saying and not doing. What does James say? Be ye, hear, or be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. James 2.14 <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. Not James 2.14. James... Uh, 1, where is it? I've lost it. James 1 and t- verse 22. <clears throat> but prove yourself doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now there's the problem. You delude yourself by just hearing and not doing I think I've mentioned this a number of times. I've, I heard Bach Singh talk about all-night prayer meetings that they would have in their church. And you hear about that and you talk about it and they had all these all-night prayer meetings and everything and after a while you get to thinking that you have been in all-night prayer meetings just because you heard somebody else talk about it. Hearers but not doers. Saying and not doing, hearing and not doing. Now, the Lord says to us here, if we will do, if we'll do, it'll make the difference between heaven and hell. Now, how could that be? It sounds like salvation by works, but it's not. You set out to really do what He says. And what happens is you're confronted with reality right off the bat, you're confronted with reality. And when you're confronted with reality, you're brought to true repentance. You can talk ever so much about, I will, sir, but if you don't try to do it and start doing it, you won't get in touch with reality. And as soon as you start doing what you're talking about, you're brought into touch with reality and you'll be saved. Well, back to... Matthew 21. By means of this parable, I think this is amazing. By means of this parable, the Lord actually brings the, the Pharisees and the chief priests to admit that repentant harlots are better than they are. Isn't that amazing? He gets them to admit that repentant harlots are better than they are. Evidently, uh, there had been many publicans and harlots come to repentance under John the Baptist. Luke chapter 7, verse uh, 29 and 30. And when all the people... And the tax gatherers, here they're mentioned specifically, and the tax gatherers heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Now there there is the root of it. They didn't humble themselves to Him, they weren't going to humble themselves to Christ. But just think about this. We don't, you know, it it doesn't uh, strike us enough maybe. Here's John the Baptist out there wearing this uh, camel's hair outfit and eating locusts and wild honey and preaching repentance. And many tax gatherers got saved through John the Baptist. And here we learn in this... Matthew 21, the Lord tells us that prostitutes were being saved through John the Baptist's ministry. Lots of them, not just one or two. There were lots of them. Now, that tells us right off the bat that we don't need to be like somebody in order to minister to them. Isn't that dumb? That's the dumbest thing. John the Baptist, was who was he like? There wasn't anybody he was like. What did they say about him? They said he, Jesus said that John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and you said he has a demon. That's how attractive he was in the eyes of the religious world. And he certainly wasn't like uh, publicans and harlots. <clears throat> uh, also, it shows how foolish this idea is that you have to be afraid that you're going to make people uncomfortable. I mean, he's out there. He says, you generation of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he starts telling them how, how what they need to do. He says to the soldiers, you need to do this and that. Be content with your wages. And that kind of stuff. I mean, he was very blatantly uh, opposite preaching repentance. <clears throat> that was his whole message. And the fact is, he was more effective in reaching those people than anybody in his whole generation. And he was totally unconventional and unattractive by the world's standards. But anyway, the publicans and the harlots had repented at the message of John. They had done the will of the Father. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> that implied that they were more pleasing to God than these Pharisees. And the Pharisees admitted... they. Before they realize what they're doing, they say, Well, which of the two did the will of his father? The latter. Let's look at this back in Ezekiel 18. Quite a remarkable portion here in Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18, verse 21. Actually, we'd need to read the whole chapter to get the feel for all this. But verse 21, If the wicked man... Now these are are wonderful verses. If the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live he shall not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness which he has practiced, he will live. Now, here's a guy, in other words, that has true repentance. No matter what he's done, he says all of the past will be forgiven if you turn to God in true repentance. Verse 23, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Rather than that, he should turn from his ways, turn from his ways, and live. Turn and live. Verse 24, the contrast. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds, quote unquote, which he has done, will not be remembered. For his treachery, which he has committed, and his sin, which he has committed, for them he will die. Now notice here, he's not talking about somebody that's a true Christian falling away. He's talking about somebody that's treacherous. He's talking about somebody that said, I will, sir, and they don't. And so what happens is this guy has all this outward show, but the reality of it is that he loves and follows sin. And all of this outward show will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed. You know, if you have a friend who shows all kinds of affection toward you when things are going good and as soon as everything turns bad, they disappear, what would you say about them? It's a treachery, it's treachery, and that's the situation here. Well, uh, all men are equally lost before God and themselves. Uh, true repentance results in obedience from the heart. And then finally, uh, the lesson that we learn here from this, I think, is this: God will receive all who truly repent. There's really wonderful hope in this parable. First of all, there's hope for the outwardly rude and rebellious. There's all kinds of hope for them. Such grace here. Here's a person that starts out shaking his fist at God, saying, I will not. And when he gets his senses and says, "I, I will, I'll go, God doesn't disown him. He takes him in and he forgives him everything that he's done, and uh, receives him completely. But the second group, there's also hope here for the elder brother, for the scribes and the Pharisees. Notice this, verse 31. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God instead of you. That isn't what he says, is it? He says, "Dug it in before you. But he leaves the door open for those guys right there who were wanting to crucify him. He leaves the door open that they might get in too. If they were willing to humble themselves and follow these other people, they can get in. <clears throat> follow them in the blessing of eternal life. And we have a great example of this, don't we? In Saul of Tarsus. Here's a guy. He was one of those that said, I go, and yet he wasn't going. He was living totally for himself. And yet, uh, by the grace of God, he ends up getting into the kingdom of heaven too. Uh, They had all kinds of reason for believing. Verse 32, John came to you in the way of righteousness. They knew in their hearts that he was preaching righteousness from God. They knew that, and they rejected Him. But then they had even further reason for believing, and that is they saw the effects of John's ministry in these notorious sinners turning to God. And he says, you still didn't feel remorse uh, and turn around so as to believe it. But it wasn't too late yet. And some of these very priests and elders and uh, Pharisees that were listening to Him that day, they did make it in. They made it in later. They got in later, but they did get in. So what an encouragement. Uh, Again, we've seen this every time. The Lord loves outright, defiant rebels. And is willing to forgive them. He also loves deceptive, uh, false, deceitful rebels and is willing to forgive them. And so I think that's the teaching in this parable of the two sons. Anyone have something more to say or ask or share? Well, I think uh, I think the way Jesus did it the most was to talk about heart righteousness. And so, uh, you know, like in Matthew 5, He says, uh, uh, You have heard it said that you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her, and uh, you should not commit murder, but whoever is angry and hateful in his heart <clears throat> has already committed murder. So I think what we do is you, you can talk to a person like that and, sh- and try to bring out what it is to really truly be a Christian. It has a heart it involves a heart righteousness. Just like in First John, he who says that he loves God and hates his brother is a liar. So there's a lot of that kind of thing. The rich young ruler is another good example. The rich young ruler, he Jesus said, keep the commandments. And he said, all these things have I kept from my youth up. There, I "I go, sir. You know, I'm doing all that. So then, he just brings home to him on a deeper level, on a spiritual level, what the commandments mean to God. And when he saw what it really meant, on a deeper level, what those commandments meant, then he went away sorrowful. he He's a classic example. Somebody says, I go, sir, and then didn't go. Unless he repented afterwards. We don't know about that. The Lord told us, by their fruits you shall know them. And uh, there's no such thing as a private Christian. There's no such thing as a secret Christian. Many years ago, before he ever made his profession of faith, uh, Dick and I met a a fellow in... uh, Switzerland, who said he thought Bob Dylan was a Christian because of some subtle things in his lyrics or something, you know. know, He's a secret Christian. Well, that's not. Of course, after that, he made a profession of faith, and then he turned back from that after two or three years. But uh, you don't have to worry about that. Maybe so-and-so is a secret Christian, you know, and you get a little hint in this or that, that maybe they made some reference that might imply God. That is, there are no such things, though. Father, we marvel at the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ once again. How uh, it, it's it's truly glorious. We think of Him as a a young man there coming into the temple and taking charge of His Father's house. And all of these, uh, even the chief priests—not just priests, but chief priests—coming in there and Pharisees, and uh, elderly men, a lot of them, and power figures, uh, were fearful really in their own way. And they came and demanded His credentials. And uh, He immediately turns this back to them and shows their sin. And from their own mouths gets them to render judgment concerning themselves. We thank You for this parable of the two sons. We thank You that there is grace for those who repent, regardless of whether they've been open rebels or secret rebels. There's such mercy extended. And we thank You, Lord, uh, that true repentance is more than just outward talk. Uh, you said who, whoever covers his sins shall not prosper but whoever confesses and forsakes them shall obtain mercy and uh, there, there's nothing uh, cheap and uh, fake about christianity it involves not only uh, a profession but it involves possession and in reality and uh, tremendous changes in the inner man, even for the most religious person. It involves tremendous changes to become a Christian. And uh, we pray, I pray, Lord, you'd keep us from anything cheap and shallow. I pray you'd keep us from talk Mm -hmm. and uh, sane. uh, And just because we've said or because we've heard, to think that that's a, a substitute for the reality of a change and of different actions and uh, we thank you for making it so clear what true repentance involves that it involves a change of life a change of action and not just words and uh, we just think of how different the history of the world would be how different the attitude would be towards Christianity if every one who said I will had actually done and uh, we just we pray in our own lives that we might not deceive ourselves by just hearing or even by saying but that you'd help us to follow through and do and to look at and to see what our practice is like in our daily lives we pray these things in jesus name amen